Welcome to Plain Talk. Plain Talk has a new podcast every two weeks with up-to-date information about aviation technologies for general and business aviation. From home to cockpit to boardroom to personal tech, Plain Talk provides informative information for pilots, industry insiders, and aviation enthusiasts alike. My name is Phil Lightstone. I'm a general aviation pilot with over 1,900 hours in my logbook, flying almost every week with over 30 years experience in the technology and aviation industries. Okay, I'd like to welcome Bob Barrett into the Plane Talk cockpit. Bob is a not only a licensed pilot, but an aircraft restorer and builder extraordinaire. Welcome, Bob. How are you doing today? Another day in paradise, although I'm not liking the minus 23 Celsius mm. I woke up to. Oh. Better than wet and rainy, Phil. True. And, uh, you know, the uh, commander I fly would be an absolute rocket ship, <laughs> but the uh, oil temps would be a little challenging to manage. Well, I've been out in this weather on skis a few times, but boy, you sure got a dress for it. Oh, you sure do. So, Bob, when did you become a licensed pilot? 25 years ago, I got my license, Peterborough Airport at their local flying club there. And my dad had a plane when I was a kid on the farm for a few years, and I was just kind of hooked ever since. And it just took quite a while to get the financial means to follow on of what I dreamed of doing. So, what uh, airplane did your dad have? My dad had a Piper Clipper, oh, which wow. is kind of an unusual Piper they made for one year only. I always laugh when I see one of the fly-in, even though they're rare, and I'll say, that's a 49, and they'll go, my friends will go, how do you know? I go, I just know. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only year they made them. <laughs> Boeing took Piper to, to task and said, you're not calling that the Clipper. Wow. <laughs> The Pan Am Clippers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Boeing still had that trademarked, and they weren't going to let Piper use it. So you know, they went on and called it a bunch of other things after that, I think a Vagabond or something. So I grew up in that, kicking around with it, and uh, always wanted to fly. So finally, 25 years ago, I got the time and got the money and the nerve and got my license and bought a Cessna 170 project immediately upon getting my license and started rebuilding it and I've been flying it for 23 years now. I've worn out one engine in it so I've been around with it quite a bit. When you've been out and about did you ever come across your dad's old airplane? As a matter of fact I did. Wow and did you buy it on the spot? (laughs) (laughs) No you wouldn't even have recognized it. It had gone through a complete um, restoration. One day I was going into Peterborough Airport for a fuel stop, and a friend of mine was just selling his tailor craft. And these two guys that I didn't recognize as being Peterborough Airport guys come taxiing in my buddy's tailor craft up behind me to get fuel, and they jumped out and were all grins because they had a new airplane. And I said, there's a couple of new Taylorcraft owners. And, and the one guy says, well, no, this, my buddy just bought it. He says, I just flew him down here from Kekabeka Falls, which is up by north of Thunder Bay. Oh. He says, I just flew him down here to pick it up in my clipper. And he points across the ramp, and I look at the registration, and I go, oh, my. 
<laughs> Instant bond. Instant. So I went over and got to sit in it and got to talk to the guy. And my, I still have my father's log book. And there was the last year and a half of his entries in his pilot log book never got filled in. And, and I was always in the plane if there was an empty seat. And I knew I was missing a bunch of it. And I told the guy that story. And I said, he imported it from Pennsylvania. I said, if you have the old log book, I sure would look like the pages from when it got imported, you know, for the next two or three years until, you know, until Barrett wasn't flying it. And a couple of weeks later, a brown envelope showed up in the mail with photocopies of the rest of the logbook for me. Wow. So I got to sit down and fill in my dad's logbook. <laughs> what a keepsake. Yes, for sure. When you were reading the, your dad's logbook, did any of the memories of those... Oh, yes. I can, I, can, I can virtually remember every flight we did. Absolutely amazing. So, yeah, it was kind of... So he had completely restored it and put a bigger engine in and, and wing tanks in and new fabric, and it just looked like a brand new airplane again. So it really was interesting that it, that it, it lives on through, through many caretakers, you know, since, since my dad, probably 50 years ago now. So it was kind of neat. On a personal note uh, for my kids so they started flying with me you know when they were three and five years old yeah. and I got them at our local prop shop uh, passenger log books yeah. and uh, uh, recorded every flight whether it was with Air Canada or Air Dad. Well that's what I tell people when I'm taxiing in. Thank you for flying Air Bob. <laughs> so speaking of Air Bob, you've got a bunch of projects at the at your home underway. Well, I do. Um, right now, I am building a replica of a Great Lakes biplane from the 30s. Wow! Radial engine and yes, seven-cylinder Warner radial, 165 horse. They never came with a radial. They they all came with a with a Cirrus inverted or upright four-cylinder looked much like a, like a gypsy major, mm -hmm. so it was an inline air-cooled four. They were 85 horsepower, really unreliable engine. So just about all the original Great Lakes, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, were modified either to a Warner radial or a Kinner radial or a Ranger inline six. So unless they're in museums, you know, completely original, I, I haven't, I've never seen a Cirrus one flying. I'm sure there's some somewhere. Sure. And for those who might not have the uh, picture of a Great Lakes in their, in their head, that's a fabric biplane of, you know, uh, years gone by from the golden age of, of flying. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about the airplane? So a Great Lakes is, is smaller than a Stearman, but bigger than a Pitt Special. So it's a, it's a two-seat tandem open, open cockpit and four wings, all, all, all fabric covered. The wings have a wooden spar, the main beam, and punched aluminum ribs. They were the first company that ever used punch aluminum ribs in, in airplanes. And then it's, it's got a steel tube fuselage and, and all fabric covered. It must be quite uh, an art to cover uh, an airplane uh, in fabric. And... Well, this is, this is my first fabric job. And I don't know, there's a lot of ugly fabric airplanes flying around that are perfectly safe. I, I didn't want that one. And, and I almost took on a different project just to learn how to do it. Well, I guess once I actually get it 
finished and take it to some fly-ins, I guess the the real critiquing will be there. What what people everybody likes to pick pick everybody's work apart. So I, I went to a lot of work to make sure all the reinforcing tapes were straight and all the rib stitching was aligned and tidy. But um, it's kind of interesting because the last few years, as I'm working up to doing fabric, you know, every time I see a fabric airplane at a fly, and I go around it and look this way and look that way, and you know, sooner or later, you usually draw the owner's attention and. They come over looking looking to get critiqued, and I try not to be negative if I can, because I hate it when it happens to me. Everybody's proud of what they've done. Well, Bob, I have to say that, uh, of course, you know, my uh, airplane building skills were completely limited to radio-controlled model airplanes. It's just a, it's just a bigger one. Same thing. Uh, you know, for the Plane Talk uh, audience, as that is a, a backdrop, I had the opportunity to uh, wander around uh, Bob's uh, hangar and uh, looking at the the covering on the Great Lakes, uh, I would put it in the phenomenal class, at least compared to you know my my skills. And it looks really nice. That's all my own paintwork as well. You know, tell us a little bit about the the journey with the Great Lakes. Like uh... in the in the 1970s, another company took over, like bought the type certificate for Great Lakes, and they made a few more. And it's funny because the first Great Lakes went broke in the 30s in the Great Depression. So they kind of floated around. I can't think of how many they made. I don't think they made a thousand of them, but I don't have a number with me. So they made a few hundred more in the 70s. And didn't they end up going broke, you know, in the early 80s? If you, if, if you remember there, the you know, the interest was 22% suddenly. And Everybody was losing their house, so the company went broke again. And just in the last few years, Waco Classic Aircraft in Michigan, they have kind of taken up the banner, and they have made redesigned it a bit and made a few more, but, you know, it's it's a hundred grand cheaper than a full-size Waco, and they don't seem to be selling many. They've stopped production now, too. So it really is a storied little airplane. Before the Pitts Special came along in the 60s, like they were the aerobatic airplane to have. Like the, 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 all the aerobatic competition people used, you know, highly modified Great Lakes, Harold Cryer being one of them. Anybody can Google Harold Cryer and the Cryer craft. He, he, he made all kinds of records with those airplanes. So you got your Great Lakes, I uh, understand, over 11 years ago. I probably got it 15 years ago or more. I was in the middle of building my float plane at the time. I got so many friends that have four or five airplanes and none of them fly, and I was all excited to get this biplane project, and I looked at it and I thought, no, just put it away in the hangar and continue on what you're doing and get that done. Don't be the guy that's throwing money at four different projects and doesn't have nothing to fly. So this airplane is registered as an experimental amateur-built aircraft. A lot of its parts, in, in the 70s when the Great Lakes Company was failing yet again, it, it seems as though, I don't know the story for sure, but it seems as though they had like lump boxes of parts that just went out the back door. <laughs> like they just they, they put together as much stuff as they could and it didn't have an identity or anything, and it just got sold off as 
as projects or people could continue on to make it an experimental aircraft. And that's how this one started. A guy in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, just collected stuff for years. And it never really got much further than a collection and, and a bunch of assembly. I'm actually the fourth owner that has owned it since since the whole thing has started. And that's not really an unusual story with with home-built aircraft. People just, they're, it, they're a huge undertaking. And, you know, people just realize it costs more or, you know, they, they, they just go and buy an airplane because they really want something to fly. They're not actually builders. They just thought building would be a cheaper way than buying. Other than the two to 5,000 hour part. Yeah, but what are you going to do? Sit around in the evening and watch TV? I just yeah, come true. out and drive rivets and tinker with stuff. I tell people it's like, it's like eating an elephant. It's just one bite at a time. 15 years ago, you picked up the, uh, the Waco. Was, was it still sitting in uh, Sault Ste. Marie? No, it was in Niagara Falls is oh. where I got it. Wow, even a closer drive. <laughs> So it, yeah, it, it had, it had, and it had, it had sat there for some time as well, with with really not much done to it either. So, what was the condition of the of the project when you picked it up in? Uh, well, ev- like literally everything is brand new. There's not a single part of the airplane that has ever flown or or or, or been outside. So it, it it basically just needed needed assembly. You know, I got I got 300 rolls of blueprints that came with it, which was a big lifesaver. A lot of the stuff that had already been made, at at first blush, you know, this is done, that's done, something else is done. When you really get looking at it, you go, I don't really like the weld on that. And you get the blueprint out, and you get looking at it, and you go, well, this dimension isn't right, or oh my God, the tubing isn't the right wall thickness for that. And I just ended up redoing so much stuff to bring it up to what my feeling of an airworthy standard is, which I keep fairly high. Well, especially since it's, uh, you know, you're the pilot in command. Well, I tell people, like, if you do the very best job you can, that's only just good enough. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at it and go, oh, no, you don't like it, just, just, just do it again. And, you know, you've learned how to make that part. Now, now make it really nice, and that's what I've that's I've just kept that standard the whole way through the project. And I was sure I could finish it last winter, but I guess it's one more. So I, I keep telling myself it's one more COVID winter, and I'll have it done. Awesome. <laughs> but people people try to nail me down. Like, when's this going to be done? Like, what are you going to do? And I just say it's all about the journey, and it's done when it's done. It's true. Well, I I couldn't imagine what that first flight is going to be like. Well, it'll be it'll be very interesting because I don't really have much biplane time. I've got a couple of thousand hours of tailwheel time, but I don't have any blind tailwheel time. Some tailwheel airplanes you have forward visibility, and some you don't on the ground. And and the Great Lakes you don't have any forward visibility. So lately, I've borrowed and been flying a friend's Super Cub from the back seat (laughs) so that I can get the feel of of that peripheral vision on takeoff and landing. And and I'm I'm not using any flaps or any anything. I'm just flying it as a basic, basic airplane because that's 
that, that's how this airplane's going to handle. So you just have to uh, rely on the, the pesky coyote that comes across your uh, grass strip to avoid you because you can't, won't be able to see him to avoid. Well, quite possibly. Like per, your peripheral vision is actually better than your straight ahead vision. So, you know, this, it's just 20 degrees out to each side is what you're seeing once the, once the tail is on the ground, right? So you just got to, you have to just swerve a bit to taxi. But yeah, there is, there is a blind spot on, on rollout once the tail comes down that, that, that you're just kind of along for the ride. So I have to thank the, you know, the anxiety followed by exhilaration leading up to that first flight. It's going to be absolutely amazing. There's a guy in Arizona that has a Great Lakes, and he does... Um, aerobatic training and tailwheel checkouts my my it, now it, it it's a fully aerobatic inverted fuel and oil one with a with a modern lycoming opposed engine on it 180 horse um i've always fantasized of going down there and getting 10 or 15 hours like actually in a great lakes great idea well wait with the covid situation now i'm not comfortable to go anywhere so that's why i've been that's why i've been doing the, the super cub thing a little bit to, Try to get myself a little more ready for it. So there's a bit, I understand there's a bit of a story around the Werner engine. Well, the Werner engines are, are a bit of a rarity. They, they, they made them, you know, through the 30s in, in Detroit, Michigan. They were a little smaller dimensionally than more of the popular Continental and Lycoming and, and Wright radials like Stearman's and, and stuff like that. had Because this engine's only three feet across, like a meter across. So it's a very small engine. It's, a, it's kind of an appropriate size for this airplane and an, and an appropriate pow, power. And there's not many of them around. They're a bit of an orphan. Anyway, I found this one in a museum in St. Louis, Missouri. And they were, they had it for a project and that project would get set aside when something more interesting came along and then they needed an engine for a different project and he decided to put it up for sale. I spotted it in a little wee written ad in Trade-A-Plane. Huh. He had a mount, he had cowlings, he had an oil tank, he had dish pan, he had had an assortment of everything that I could need to to do the installation. So I I just jumped in the truck and drove down, sorted through sorted through all his stuff and made a deal and and brought it home. Absolutely amazing! I saw the engine sitting on the stand and what a gorgeous engine! I mean, it's like jewelry. But I I think it it. it, it it, it just looks like a like a piece of art deco to me. I've seen people put radial engines under a piece of glass as a coffee table. Like you just, no matter how much you look at it, you just can't find it not interesting to look at. What prop is going on it? I have a wooden prop. The hub to drive the wooden prop was the hardest thing to find. I was two years hunting it down. Oh, wow. The guy in St. Louis had one and couldn't find it. Oh, and I had contacted him a couple more times about it, and he said, "Ah, oh, it's either here, or it's out of my ranch, and I'll find it." And he ended up dying of pneumonia. And to this day, the estate is still held up. He was in his early 80s when I knew him, and 
he had no will or no anything. Oh, that's unfortunate. I'd talked to his son a couple of times and said, oh, I'm sure it's all here somewhere, but we can't touch nothing. It's, it's called a 20-spline prop hub. The same one fits a Stearman, but the whole hub is like a bigger, clunkier part. I wanted a Warner one that is just a little smaller and appropriate size. I actually found one in Michigan on a cold call, huh. which was kind of interesting. I was watching Trade a Plane, and the guy was selling a Warner-powered airplane, and it was it was a it was a Fokker triplane replica. And I just phoned the guy up and said, "I'm looking for one of these. Like, you seem like a Warner engine guy." And wow! And he had a hub for me, and and um, I managed to get it. So then. You know, there's there's all kinds of aluminum propellers that are really nice and probably perform better than a wooden one, but they're all 90 years old and nobody wants to go to a prop shop. They just think it's worth a fortune. And you know, if it gets condemned, you you got a really expensive wall hanger. I really like the aromatic self-adjusting pitch propeller they had in the 30s. That they were a really crude airfoil. And they had a bad reputation for shedding blades. There's a guy that overhauls them in Texas, but he's had a few failures too. So in the end, it seemed to me the safest thing to do would be buy a brand new wooden prop, put a hub on, and be happy with it. Because a big wooden propeller hanging in the front of a biplane is kind of a pretty thing. Absolutely. So I didn't have to buy the Sensenich prop because this isn't a certified project, I bought a Culver prop. Anybody wants to Google um, Culver propellers, it's a really interesting story. The Experimental Aircraft Channel has done a, a walkthrough. This lady took over her grandfather's propeller-making shop. Wow. And like, she's booked like a year and a half ahead to make, to make propellers. And she uses all her grandfather's homemade propeller tracers. And there's a picture in the attic, all these prop blanks for the different pitches and lengths and profiles. Just like thousands of them hanging in the attic. Wow, amazing. So anyway, I waited a year and a half and she made me a propeller. It's, it's maple and cherry laminated. Looks really nice. So uh, I seem to recall you've got a bunch of car projects at, at the hangar. Um, right now I've got a 1960 Porsche 356 in the shop. It was probably the rottenest Porsche in existence. Oh, no. But a customer and friend of mine that has another Porsche decided that this was the one, and he wanted to help rebuild it. I, I, I tell people we replaced everything other than the roof, and that is true. My God. Wow. It would have made a really good parts car because it was an absolutely complete car. There wasn't a lens or an emblem or a hubcap missing, which is mm. kind of unusual. It sat in a dirt floor shed for 32 years, and there was just nothing left of it. Wow, that's unfortunate. Um, we managed to find the parts and scrounge stuff up and make stuff, and, and um, we've got it all together. We've got it all, the, the, the body, all the body and structure is done and complete. The body fill is all complete. It's probably 95% ready for paint. Um, we've taken a bit of a break from the bodywork end of it because I don't like the mess in my shop when I'm working on my airplane. So this winter, we're overhauling the engine and transmission for it. It's, it's, it's almost ready to put that stuff back in in the spring. So for a 
something different to look at. We're going at that now. So it's got a four-cylinder opposed engine. I don't know, it kind of looks like an airplane engine when it's laying on the workbench. <laughs> as long as you don't get them mixed up. That... It looks like, looks, looks like a small version of a Continental O200 oh, or wow. something. Cool. So that's what we're working at on, on that this winter in between the, in between the other things. So have you started to think in your mind's eye what the next airplane project's going to be? Well, the next one after done the, the, the Great Lakes will definitely be the Swift project that's waiting in the hangar. And who knows after that, I remember seeing a thing in sport aviation a few years ago that a father and son had restored like a dozen vintage airplanes and the writer called them repeat offenders. <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. Well, that uh, must be a great father-son experience. And, yeah, I imagine they had a. They, they, they were looked like they were having a good time. All the pictures and all the stuff. Sure. So, what's on the horizon? I have no idea. I'm 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 focusing on trying to get this Great Lakes done, and then I'm going to push this um, Swift into the shop and go at it. Now, I've already got a couple of airplanes in the hangar that I fly all the time. So, like, I go at airplane project for three or four months in the winter with Ernest, but the rest of the year when you got a couple of airplanes to fly there's enough maintenance and oil changes and things to do that if you want to get some flying done and do some do a bit of maintenance yourself it it's almost enough in the summertime to scratch your building itch just keeping what you've got going yeah. any final thoughts for the plane talk audience Ah, no, I think we've hit most of the highlights, haven't we, Phil? I think so. And <laughs> I do want to thank you for uh, spending some time in the Plain Talk cockpit. You are very welcome. I'm hoping to run into you somewhere to fly in or on a summer day or something. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talk. If you have any ideas for a future Plain Talk episode, please go to the Contact Us page at plaintalk.ca and send in your idea. Don't forget to like us at plaintalk.ca, our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, and this podcast. And never stop living the dream.